We made this. Welcome back, everyone, to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm your host, Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And in this episode, we're back for part two of our best of 2021 scores and looking ahead to what we're most anticipating in 2022. We just did films 10 down to 6 in the last episode, um, talking about things as varied as The Green Knight through to... The Beatles get back through to Promising Young Woman and quite a, a, a dose of Marvel along the way. But in this one, we're covering uh, an equal variety as we talk about what we consider pro- is, is equal, both of our top fives. So uh, we're in the, the creme de la creme here, uh, I think, Sean. So why don't you kick us off with what your number five entry would be? So this is Don't Look Up by Nicholas Brattel, whom we, we obviously referred to in, in the previous episode with his with his score for the Underground Railroad. Again, I think picking up on our thread from earlier, this confirms Brattel as one of the most exciting and dynamic and versatile film composers of the modern age. I mean, this score for Don't Look Up is completely different from the Underground Railroad, as you would expect, because the subject matter is different. You know, the intention is different, but it just confirms how Brattel can adapt to different idioms so just to briefly recap Netflix movie directed by Adam McKay astonishing all-star cast led by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence both of whom play um, astronomers who discover a a meteor and then they discover that the meteor's trajectory will set it on a collision course with earth and everyone is basically going to die and the more they try and convince people that, that, that the end of days is coming the less seriously they're taken um, the irony being that, you know, the more you shout about a disaster in people's faces, the more they'll turn uh, their backs on it. And, you know, it's, it's it's not a great movie. It's glib. It's trite. It's basically an overextended Saturday Night Live sketch. I don't think it plums any great insights necessarily, but it, it, it is superficially amusing. It did make me laugh all the way through, albeit it made me laugh on a kind of broad cartoonish kind of level i don't think the movie is it's not it's never as dark or as insightful as it should be is it really i don't what what were you what did you think of it well i mean this has really ripped twitter apart hasn't it in the last few days like the last week or so over the christmas period like lots there's been lots of discussion over whether this is rubbish or really great and i i I liked it i liked it more than i think some other people did but I, i agree with what your with your assessment it is it is very glib it is quite it is a bit smug it is superficial, and, I th- and for me, that was the point. I think the idea is that you know, there's the cast are, are really good in this, particularly Jennifer Lawrence, who plays a character who literally at one point on the most facile chat show ever <laughs> shouts into camera, "I'm gonna fucking die!" Like, and I think, and there's been a lot of talk about it being a big metaphor for climate change, and it is, it is as subtle as a brick, but I think that's kind of the point. I mean, when you have the very broad targets that Meryl Streep as a very Trumpian president and her dumbass son played by Jonah Hill, who's very clearly like, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or whatever, or Jared Kushner or these people, they are like, it's very clear who they're going after. 
And I think, you know, given what we've had in the last five years, I think satire in a way is really hard to do now because yeah. so much of what would have been satirised has happened in and is happening. So I think in a way, broad targets aren't necessarily a bad thing. And I think Don't Look Up at least has the the front to really scream in your face, wait, we've got to wake up. What are we doing? This is all bonkers. So, I mean, I, I, I think I described it to someone as like throwing deep impact, the 1988 asteroid movie, and the 1976 Sydney Lumet film Network into a blender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, now, it's not as good as either of them. Let me just preface that. But, you know, Network is famous for Peter Finch going, I'm mad as hell! You know, and it's just amazing. One of the best moments in cinema history, that is. But there is a little bit of that in Jennifer Lawrence and when Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio later on loses it on TV as well, which I, which I appreciated. So I, I liked the film, but Brittell's score was fab. To get back to the music... Wasn't it really good? Like it was this really, I think it knew that the film was daft because it plays a very sort of silly, you know, over the top sort of jazzy register to what is actually quite serious in theory. It's quite a serious topic, isn't it? The destruction of the world, all these, you know, ideas go through, but he plays it at a really heightened, fun register. Yeah, it's it, there are basically two, there are two themes in it, which, which, occupy different idioms you've mentioned the big like raucous big band jazz swing there which is essentially that's the absurdist theme that's the theme that's the theme that underscores the incredulity of DiCaprio and Lawrence's characters the fact that the more that they announce this the the more the situation becomes perverse and twisted and there's something about using kind of raucous big jazz for that which, which works on a kind of broad comic level there's also the much more introverted and beautiful sort of string glockenspiel theme, which is about the imminent tragedy of the situation, about the the the, the fact that um, you know these two characters know that the world is going to end, but no one wants to listen to them, and the way Brattel into sort of interweaves the increasingly as the score goes on, these two themes are interwoven within individual tracks together, so you get. The idea of, you know, the, the jazz is inverted to sound melancholy, the melancholy is inverted to sound jazz-like and, and silly. And I think the idea is that good and bad, kind of sad and funny, all become interwoven throughout the score very, very well. There's also a superb track called The Launch, which is, it, it, again, this is a very ironic score. It uses sort of melodic beauty in a very ironic way because The Launch underscores the basically the, the, the entire mission to, as to what to do with this asteroid is is um, appropriated by this hideous tech guru, a court played by Mark Rylance, who is just one of the most who punchable villains like this all I've the way seen. Through, doesn't he? He's like he's got this kind of weird register that oh yes, I'm going to change the world with my asteroid technology. Like... My favourite scene in the film is where he basically Leonardo DiCaprio dares to suggest, right? Are you approaching this as a scientist or as a businessman? He's like. He's like, did you just call me a businessman? He's like, <laughs> you know, we've got 40 data points on you, and I know how you're going to die. And your your death was so unremarkable and boring. But yeah, I know this about you. You're going to die alone. And it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah, he's yeah, horrible. It's, yeah, it's awful, isn't but, it? Yeah. He's among the many cartoonish pantomimic characters who's skewered musically by Nicholas Brattell in, in, the, in this score. But the, the movie pulls it together for a very, very poignant climax. And it's, it's very, very well scored in the climax. It gets the, at the end of the day, the score is more sincere than it is sardonic. I think the, the score does aim to capture that sense of tragedy. And I think it does it 
actually very well and it confirms Nicholas Bratel is a really, really exciting composer to watch. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really interesting. The fact the film has caused so much of a schism in people proves that it's worth seeing, I think, whatever side of the fence you're on and the music just accompanies that in a brilliant way. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good choice. I'm glad you put it on here, actually, as a fairly sort of late entry because it only came out Christmas Eve, so you know. So for my number five, I've gone for the other Johnny Greenwood one we talked about in the previous part. Um, this is The Power of the Dog, which was Jane Campion's um, adaptation of the book of the same name. Came out the start of December, starring um, Thimblework, uh, Creeping Cratch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, as, or as Philomena Kunk calls him, Ben Lynn Thundercrack. <laughs> <laughs> That's way better than mine. And uh, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, set in Montana in the 20s, sort of at the end, in a way, of the uh, the American West period. Uh, and it's about two brothers um, who uh, own a farmhouse and one falls in love with uh, Kirsten Dunst's character who comes in and changes the dynamic, um, particularly for Cumberbatch's character. And it's a, it's a really um, interesting film. It's a very measured and slow film in many ways. It looks beautiful. It's 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 got a great script. It's got some really great performances. I mean, I think Cumberbatch is particularly excellent in this. And I, I thought Greenwood's music. I mean, very different from Spencer because here he's he's playing much more on a on a melodic register. Uh, he ta- he taps a lot of the traditional sort of themes you hear in because this is this is it's like it's a bit like a western, but it's much more of like a psychological drama in many ways, as opposed to being, you know, cowboys and Indians, you know, all that. It's not like that at all. It's just, it happens to be set in the, in the American expanse, but it is much more, it's a very sad story, really. It's quite a, it it has the pretensions of being rough edged, but it's actually very, very sensitive in the, in the middle of it. And I, and I think that's what Greenwood gets in his music. He manages to capture that wilderness and capture that sense of the frontier and, and that harshness but at the same time there there is a lot of romance to this score i think and in in that sense parts of it reminded me of phantom thread which we mentioned earlier as well in a different way and i, th- I think it's great how we can flip between these much more jagged edged soundscapes uh a lot like when you mentioned there will be blood there's a lot of that in there but then he can he can also do this stuff at the same time i think he's really he's really varied and i thought i thought the film was great it made my top 10 of the year and uh the music's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it shows that Johnny Greenwood can get under the skin of characters brilliantly uh, in, in musical form. I, I thought that the film was, how do I describe it? The film was very, very Jane Campion. Um, <laughs> in as much as enough, I found yeah. it largely inscrutable, quite sort of maybe kind of alienating and slightly emotionally distancing, despite the fact that I've read the Thomas, I read the Thomas Savage book on which it's based. And I really liked the book. And I thought, um, uh, Cumberbatch was brilliant as Phil Burbank. He got his savagery, but also his repressed sexuality very well. Like the idea is it is a story of repressed sexuality. Like you say, it's, it's a Western, but it's not a Western. And therefore Johnny Greenwood's score, owes itself to western conventions you know banjos guitars and so on yet it doesn't owe itself to that there is a there is a sweep there is a melodic sweep which suggests that it's not you know you can't define the story by the landscapes and by the appearance of the people there there are it's kind of more of an archetypal 
um, mythical Cain and Abel story to it. The idea of two brothers, you know, who are opposed and, you know, who are wildly opposed to each other. And I think Johnny Greenwood's score picks up on those psychological dimensions. I have to say, within the context of the movie, I found it relatively subtle, which I think was, was the point. I think I had to listen quite hard to actually pick it out. I mean, again, it might be the classic thing because I wasn't emotionally engaged with the, with the drama of the film. I might have found it a bit more of a challenge to connect emotionally with the music, which is, again, is something that's the weird dichotomy of film music. You know, can you engage with the music and not engage with the film? If you're not engaged with the film, does that mean that you're inherently not engaged with the music? For me, it kind of, it vacillates from, from project to project. I mean, for me personally, Spencer was was my favourite um, Johnny Greenwood score of the year. And as we mentioned on the, you know, on the previous podcast, he's also got Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He's written the score for that, which again is completely different. Again, you know, very bittersweet and very gentle. Whatever one's thoughts on individual Johnny Greenwood scores, you can't deny that he he's become a superb artiste. I mean, it's really exciting to watch him develop like this, don't you think? Oh god yeah. Yeah, really. Like it's 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 been very interesting to see how he's how he's come on and we, you know we talked a bit about it in the last episode with Spencer. But yeah, it's there's so many possibilities he can do, you know, and so many possible kind of movies he could take on and projects. It's he, he is emerging, you know, as as I mentioned about Nicholas Patel emerging as one of the the modern greats. I think Johnny Greenwood is actually. I think and and it's been happening for a good 10 years now, I think slowly but surely. So yeah, or more, in fact. Um, so it's great. It is really good, and and we're seeing a real diversity from him. So no, it's 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 it, it's a great score, and I, th- I think your misgivings are fair. You know, I, I I do there. I think it's it was quite emotionally distancing in many ways as a film. It's 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 a slippery one, in, it, it, and and I think that's that's why it's been so well regarded because it's not it doesn't give you everything on a plate, you know, and that that's good. That's a good thing. That is a good thing in in an emotional and literal way. So um, no, it's good. It's 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 a good piece. Your number four, then, Sean, is a fi- is a film I've done quite well because quite often I'm like, oh, I've not seen that. I've not seen that. I've not seen that. This is the first one on the list so far. It's a film <laughs> I haven't seen. <laughs> I think it's the only one I haven't seen actually on this list. No, tell a lie. There is another one this episode. Um, but yeah, why don't you tell us what your number four is then and why you love it? So this is the score for Minari by Emil Mosseri, who uh, Mosseri is another very, very exciting uh, rising star in the in the in the film school uh, world. He scored the likes of uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco a couple of years ago, which oh, is a that. very it's a lovely score, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um, and again, there's a very, very he's got a very distinctive sound. He's only done a handful of, of movies and. There's a very, again, I hate to draw the comparison with Alexandre Desplat again, but I think this shows how influential Desplat is. There's a very crystalline quality to Masseri's music, very crystalline, very metronomic, very precise, lots of use of chimes and glockenspiels and strings that have these suspensions and sort of unexpected intervals. There's a very sort of delicate sense of there was there was the Miranda July movie that he scored as well the name of which um escapes me Cajillionaire Cajillionaire that's it Cajillionaire yeah um which again had a you know similarly like, almost offbeat quality to it although it, it, it was a Miranda July film to be fair I mean Minari is a lovely story Oscar-winning film from Lee, director, director Lee Isaac Chung about a um Korean 
a family uh, living in America in the 1980s, who the father of whom decides to up sticks and move them to rural Arkansas so they can live off the land. And it's a very, very bucolic, very gentle, very well-observed movie. There's nothing mawkish or melodramatic about it, which means Masseri is perfect to score this because that very kind of shimmering, delicate sound that he's got to his music accentuates the emotion without ever swamping it. And it's just a really lovely, graceful, balletic, melodic score that captures the, you know, the various interactions between these different family members, all of whom have got different motivations, different aspirations, primarily Stephen Yun as, as the father who is, you know, desperate to make a go of it in you know, in, in, in the in the USA, you know, the land of opportunity and, you know, there, there's a conflict between whether whether his young children are destined to speak Korean or speak English and all these complex family dynamics that are just gently accentuated by Masseri's music and the um the Minari of the title is, is a is a plant that that grows near where near where they're they're living. It's kind of it's a it's a it's a, a watercress almost in a way and in it almost and apparently this is this is something that's used very it, it's prevalent throughout um uh korean culture particularly in um in cooking and the idea is that they come across this plant in america and, it, and it's kind of a reminder of their roots and then their family and and it's um it's really it's a really lovely film and it's a really beautiful score i mean i was lucky enough to interview emil mosseri this year and he he's a really exciting talent to watch again we've got i mean one of the one of the things i must address is when people say about modern day film music oh you, you don't you don't get any great film scores anymore it's it's, it's nonsense i mean with with voices like Masseri and johnny greenwood and nicholas Bratel, yeah, anthony willis and so on and so forth you know daniel hart there are plenty of exciting voices out there at the moment one just has to go and look for them yeah no absolutely yeah and and i think we're showcasing quite a few on this on this podcast because they really are sort of sticking out and and i i am really excited to see minari it's a film that's available now and i really want to watch because the music was gorgeous it was a lovely score it was really really emotive and sweet and and yeah, just I I really like Masseri, and I, he's done some really great stuff, and I really can't wait to see what he what he does in future. And he's you know he's plying his trade; he's not going too into too many of these big movies and this kind of thing. He's you know he's plying his trade in some nice, more niche you know stuff, and I, and I think that's great. And I and I'm, I am really excited to see what he does what he does next. I know I really like that one. Um, that's a really good choice for. My number four is also your number three, so I'm going to let you lead on this one, Sean. Now, this is <laughs> this was one we did a a big episode. This is sort of the focus on. I, th- I don't think it was the last episode we did, but it was the episode before. Probably the biggest movie, really, of last year in many ways. Dune, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, and the score by Hans Zimmer. Uh, we talked at length about this, so. Is it a surprise that it's not made either of our number ones? Or, well, maybe my number one, because you're not the greatest Zimmer fan always. Sometimes you love what he does, sometimes you don't. So maybe it's less of a surprise that it's not your number one. But is it a surprise that it's not mine? (laughs) I don't know. What do you think? What did you, has your opinion changed on this much in the last couple of months before we talked about this, Sean? Um, It's solidified somewhat i think that it, it demonstrates you know the, the best and worst of zimmer like the fact that he does have a very very idiosyncratic voice um and i like the fact that 
you know, there is very little orchestra used in this score. It's it's basically electronics and speciality instruments that create this appropriately hazy wash. It's like listening to the score is almost trying to sort of peer through the air of Arrakis and seeing the spice seeing the spice particles glimmering in the air. That, that that's the best way I can describe listening to the score is kind of a, a, an approximation of that. Um, it's got this very interesting pan Arabic tone to it uh with the use of you know the, the duduk and various other instruments um three credited vocalists which, which as as um Villeneuve and Zimmer decided that because basically the women are the characters who drive the Dune narrative the, the Benny Gesserit and and so on and so forth the, the, the female vocals humanize the narrative and also implicitly suggest what's going on behind the scenes I think that's a brilliant touch I think it works very well the the, the vocals are ultimately kind of melodic and gentle and also very strident and and often quite un- deliberately unpleasant in in the way in the way that it should be um there are whole sections in it where it does go down the the noisy aggressive sort of industrially processed hands in a route which i find harder to appreciate it kind of reminds me of the lesser material from the his christopher nolan collaborations but i understand why they have to be there I don't think the score is particularly innovative. This is why it's not my number one score of the year. I mean, it's not innovative. This basically is is a hodgepodge of everything that Hans Zimmer has done before, from Driving Miss Daisy with its electronic experimentation through to Gladiator again, which had the kind of pan-Arabic Middle Eastern tone to it in a lot of ways. I mean, this basically reconstitutes a lot of the things that Hans Zimmer has done before, but it works brilliantly in the film. And I think he gets the tone of Arrakis and the tone of the characters very, very well. I'm, 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 it's, it's not a game changer and I'm not convinced that it's a masterpiece, but I am very excited to see what Zimmer is now going to do for June part two. Just uh, a point. When you mentioned the score for Driving Miss Daisy, did you actually mean the score for Bangkok Chick Boys? <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy is a good film. <laughs> I couldn't see it because I, uh, I was in the bathroom. I was in the bathroom. Well, you can if you angle the mirror. You know. <laughs> no, I only watched it for five minutes. <laughs> We've gone on a bit of a partridge tangent. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. This mail may not stay in the edit, but we'll see how playful I feel. Oh, I, I think it needs to. I think it might, If we yeah. inspire what? people to go and watch Partridge. Yeah. One for Partridge fans, Alan Partridge, sorry guys. Um, but yes, I, I, I too agree that it will be really interesting to see what, what happens. I mean, I, I, I thought I thought it was excellent, but I don't think it's necessarily his best work. It's not as good as the... as He, is, he does get my number one spot for another movie that came out recently. I'm sure you can all guess which one that is. But... Yeah, I, I I don't know how listenable it is, really, in many ways. You know, I, I it, it works well for the movie. I don't know if it's as enjoyable independently. So I agree with what you've said, but I will be very interested to see where he takes this because it is like as a sort of high scale and in many ways in this modern day and age as as big as film scoring can get in some ways. So, you know, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see what he does for part two, which we now know definitely is coming down the pipe. So yeah, looking forward to that. The other thing I just want to say briefly was there, that he actually did three albums for this. And in many ways, yeah. I, mm. I preferred the sketchbook album, which was basically yes. the initial impressions um, before, before it was finally mixed down in, in, in into the mix that we hear in the film, that the sketchbook were, were the initial like previs um, musical ideas, and in many ways I prefer that because a lot of that, I mean, some of it is much more violently 
discordant than, than what's heard in the film. A lot of it is actually more melodic and it's more clearly thematic. And I think it's interesting that probably Denis Villeneuve didn't really want themes in the score. There are impressions, there are motifs largely from, from the vocals. Um, again, whether this is symptomatic of a problem in modern day film music that you know, largely arises from directors and producers who don't want themes in 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 music they just want you know they want the suggestions of themes obviously that's open for debate i mean i've got i've got very very mixed feelings on that but yeah i i think i think june you know solidifies hans zimmer's position as a very very idiosyncratic composer in his own right Yeah, 100 percent. no i completely agree with that yeah so for my number three, I've gone for the French Dispatch by Alexandre Desplat, which which we talked about, I think, in the last episode. Obviously, you know Wes Anderson movie, colourful, a, a completely unlike anything else you really you're going to see. We talked about it before. I I can't I I didn't love the film. I feel like it might I might enjoy it on a second watch a bit more. I found it a bit too Wes Anderson on steroids. This one a little bit, but the music. I thought it was lovely. I really did. I I, I thought particularly the because uh, it's it's in three sections essentially the film three vignettes, and the third one which revolves around Jeffrey Wright's character, particularly has this brilliant section which is involving a chase with police and it is that classic sort of. I I love that bit. That was my favourite bit in the film. I thought that was really funny. It was it was really good. Yeah, that was probably my favourite sequence actually. Yeah, definitely. And and I think. And the the music to that is fab. It's just this continuous, like three or four tracks that just builds and builds and builds and builds this. And it's got that very metronomic style to it that Desplat does. And you know, it's ve- this is a very good compliment score to the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I would argue really that the French Dispatch is a compliment to that film anyway. They are you could you could double bill them, and I think it would work. It would work in many ways. But I think this is the lesser output um, in terms of score and film actually. However. It really did stand out to me as one of my favourite bits of music in the, of the year. Um, didn't make your top top ten though, Sean. So, what do you make of this? Just as a reprise, um, as both a score and a film, I was very mixed on this. I'm a huge fan of Alexandre Desplat. I've learned to be a fan of Wes Anderson again. I love the Grand Budapest Hotel, and obviously that that score by Desplat won an Oscar, and I thought that was a lovely mixture of Balalaika and Chimbalom, lovely Eastern European tone in that. The, the the French Dispatch score starts brilliantly with what is essentially the o- an overture track, which is called Obituary, um, which is brilliant. I mean, it does that thing of each instrumentalist is kind of introduced one after the other. So you know the piano, the tubers, the clarinets, the flutes, the strings, and then it all all they all steadily amalgamate together to perform this very very celebratory impression of Bill Murray's newspaper editor he's the one who who establishes American expat journalist in France who establishes the eponymous French dispatch um newspaper and you know the idea is that he's died and the music celebrates his spirit in a very very I mean, it's it's obviously got a very appropriately provincial kind of Gallic quality to it um which one would expect but I think that track is wonderful I think unfortunately after that and there's a lot of rep- a lot of repetition in the score, which I think is to its detriment. I think a lot of ideas are stated, then reinstated, then reinstated again, and they aren't developed, which in in a way which surprises me because that's not normally a problem with Desplat. I love the sort of slinky like lounge jazz piano theme for Leia Sadu's Prison Warden, which is in the first bit. That's got a kind of sultry kind of suggestive quality to it but i think by the time you get to the final part which we've cited which has got these repetitive like euphonium tuba 
interviews. Like, okay, it's quite amusing the first time around, but I'm literally just hearing the same thing ever so slightly rearranged again and again and again. This is not a problem that I had with the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think felt very fresh and very vital throughout it. So I don't know if it's a sign of a collaboration that's kind of running on fumes a little bit. Certainly, I thought that with the film. I thought the film was... I was quite lukewarm on the film. A lot of it, a lot of it didn't work. Some bits of it were amusing. I mean, a lot of it just has that slightly airless, impenetrable feel that a lot of early Wes Anderson films had for me. Mm. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't yeah. won over by this one. I have to say. No, I'm with you. I agree. Yeah, I, I felt, I felt the same about the the film really. But yeah, I, I like, I, I do, I did enjoy, I did enjoy the score. Um, but no, I can see where your, where your issues are. Definitely, definitely. And I think if. if I don't know if they'll be able to repeat this trick again in the same way, but we'll we'll see what happens, really. But uh, I'm very curious about your number two. Now, this is this is another the only other film I haven't seen yet, a film which has been not really very well received, I don't think particularly. But and by a composer who doesn't often make top ten lists, and even though he's been around for a while, let's hear what you have to say about your number two, Sean. What is it, and what is it? Why is it this high up? Yeah, so I've selected Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is composed by Rob Simonson. And in the previous episode, we mentioned um, Joel P. West making that shift from independent dramas to big budget blockbusters, in his case, Shang-Chi. And Rob Simonson is, is is a composer who's very often dealt in kind of very critically acclaimed drama you think of things like Foxcatcher or The Way Way Back and he's now graduated into this you know big big franchise property that obviously you know deals with the you know the very very sort of in, deeply entrenched legacy of, of of Ghostbusters and obviously this tripped up Paul Feig massively in 2016 with his, with his reboot and the idea with this one is that right okay does this does Ghostbusters Afterlife which is helmed by Jason Reitman, the son of Ivan Reitman, who made the first two Ghostbusters movies, does this film actually do anything dramatically interesting with the Ghostbusters legacy, or is it just lazy fan service? This is an argument that's raging across so many films at the moment. I think, for the most part, I liked Ghostbusters Afterlife. I mean, there is a lot of pandering to the fans, but I think when you get down to the score, it's a really fascinating hybrid of... um, Elmer Bernstein's original 1984 melodies, which were, I think, overlooked in their initial iteration. I mean, clearly the Ray Parker Jr. song is what people tend to think of when they think of Ghostbusters, unsurprisingly. But Rob Simonson appropriates those original Elmer Bernstein melodies and really breathes new life into them. He turns, for example, that original jazz tack piano theme for the Ghostbusters themselves in the 84 when he now turns it, he builds into a big adventurous theme he deconstructs it he puts fragments of it all over the place so arguably he he has thrown more emphasis onto the original Elmer Bernstein themes than was evident in the original 1984 film and because legacy and nostalgia is key to this film some would say to the film's detriment I think as in terms of the score it's a fascinating example of past and present of Bernstein's personality and Simonson's personality being in it all at once um, I think it, I thought it was a really, really impressive piece of work, and it's very easy to say well, all all that Simonson is doing is quoting Bernstein. It's like, yeah, but the ways in which he quotes him, the way in which he suggests impressions of that 1984 score, 
with just a few notes or a few chords and then builds into like a big thunderous organ choral passage and then brings it back to the Bernstein score and then veers off again in a completely different direction. It's it's incredibly harmonious and fluid the way he does it. It's not a scattershot thing. It's very, very well considered and very well thought through and it does embody the sense that, as in the film, you're dealing with a legacy. You're dealing with the legacy of a particular character. I won't say who it is, but and therefore it makes sense that the score takes on this form. I thought it was I thought this was a really great score. It reminded me so much of the nineteen eighties scores that I used to love from John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and Bernstein himself, James Horner, Alan Silvestri and so on. Very, very rich orchestral colours, you know, melodies, great action material. I, I loved it to bits. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I liked it, I have to say. And obviously I haven't seen the film yet, and I will eventually. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I definitely see what you say about the the, the comparisons and the links to the original. You can tell that Simonson has definitely, you know, dipped, tried to dip back into that well a little bit. Um, but no, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it broadly. I thought it was good. I thought it. I, I thought it. Um, it could. It could be. It could be one of those better scores than the movies kind of examples maybe but I, I will wait and see what i think of the film but I, i'm i'm excited i'm more excited to see it now i think having heard you talk about it in that way actually so yeah once it hits the streamings i will check it out um <laughs> don't, don't cross the streamings <laughs> don't cross the stream <laughs> exactly yeah so yeah uh, we're on to the top the top two now so my number two is also your number one so why don't we why don't you lead on this because i think we both love this score in a big way so we have gone for, as my number two and your number one, we've gone for Spider-Man No Way Home by Michael Giacchino. Your favourite score of 2021, my second favourite. Uh, so yeah, Sean, take it away. Why is this the best score for you of 2021? I mean, wow. I mean, there's, there's so much to say about this, isn't there? I mean, firstly, let me say that I love Michael Giacchino's music in general. I love the way that he's picked up the baton of those you know those, those masters like who just cited them Jerry Goldsmith John Williams Alan Silvestri James Horner the way that he he is the modern incarnation of those guys in as much as he puts theme and melody first he's clearly you know the well one of the big blockbuster musical practitioners of the moment and there's a reason for that which is that you know I, I, I interviewed Michael Giacchino a few years ago now and he basically you know he with every score that he does, he is saluting those masters, the, those, those composers, Goldsmith, Williams, and so on. Those are the composers on with whom he grew up listening to. And he is now in a position of being able to parlay that love and that influence into scores like Spider-Man No Way Home. So this is obviously the third of his Spider-Man scores following Far From Home and Homecoming. And he's obviously, he's done other scores in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe like, like Doctor Strange. And I think that, you know, Michael Giacchino, like Alan Silvestri, is one of the composers who's really brought a thematic sense to the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it was very, very faltering up to quite recently. The idea is, okay, are there any memorable themes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Well, yes, but I think it's a relatively (laughs) recent thing within the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it owes itself to composers like Silvestri and Giacchino. And clearly with this being not only the third musical instalment of this particular spider-man trilogy but it obviously also owing itself to the multiverse which allows other musical themes to be imported into it so for example you know danny elfman's green goblin theme 
from 2002 Spider-Man, Danny Elfman's Dr. Octopus theme from 2004 Spider-Man 2, you know, loads and loads of other themes are then grafted onto Giacchino's own material, which he has established via Far From Home and Homecoming. So you have, you do have the, the main Spider-Man theme, you have the Doctor Strange theme, which is appropriately enough quoted regularly throughout. And I just think it's just, it's a masterclass in thematic scoring in the way there are lots of disparate elements, lots of, you know, there are there are legacy themes that are deployed in this. There are also Giacchino's own themes. The way they're all, you know, like when Doctor Strange does his spell and he moves his hands through the air and he kind of creates these incredible like whirls of like magic and spells. I imagine Giacchino sort of, sort of doing that musically, like sort of plucking <laughs> all of these different things and arranging yeah. them in this kind of, you know, in this in this remarkable impressionistic tapestry. And I know that a lot of people have, some people have taken aim at this score for, you know, apparently, you know, maybe not deploying the legacy themes as much as perhaps one might expect. I like I like how it's done, the, you know, for example, the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus themes are done quite tastefully. They're done very strategically, maybe only a few bars in a certain point. But it, that makes sense because this is, it's a score for Tom Holland, the Spider-Man. It's his destiny. Um, the way that his Spider-Man theme is deconstructed from like a heroic sense to a sort of more emotional, heart-rending sense at one point. And then there's another theme which Giacchino brings in, which I suppose it could be given any number of names, really. I like to call it the redemption theme, the idea that in this Spider-Man film, his his Peter Parker actually grows up. You know, he suffers a vicious betrayal and there's there's another theme that Giacchino introduces which is probably you know you could also call it the great responsibility theme which does build alongside all of these myriad other musical ideas in it and I think it all feels very coherent it's very Giacchino I mean I love the action music in it the action music is it don't you think it's got that very Danny Elfman so I mean I think this is this is doffing the cat to Danny Elfman the use of the timpani to create almost this carnivalesque sense of just excitement and chaos going on i mean that that's got to have been deliberate i mean i'm pretty sure it was deliberate don't you think yeah 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 definitely definitely i think the whole thing's just a ride like i really do i think it's an absolute a carnivalesque kind of atmosphere at parts of it is is definitely true and then he contrasts that with um uh the sequence where um spoilers in case you haven't seen the film but you know just warning you spoilers where art may dies you have that you have a beautifully sad elegy to that as well yeah. in one track and I, and you know so he can he does both in this film i thought i thought it was really brilliant like in terms of the complexity you know i mean i, I it's hard to say that giacchino this is giacchino at the top of his game i think giacchino has been at the top of his game for getting on for about 15 years now frankly i think i think i think he's just consistently brilliant in what he does he very rarely puts a foot wrong he is for me the greatest current living composer outside of the you know John Williams and and any of the the long term greats who are still with us, I think he's fantastic, and I th- I think this is this is the kind of example of that, where he's got he's pulling from all these different areas, like you've said, you know, you've described really well, and he's making it work in a film that you know, I mean, I really enjoyed this film, I thought it was great, and and I I think a lot of people a lot of people haven't felt that they felt it was messy and noisy and a bit chaotic, and I get that completely because I think it is, I think it knows it is in a way. This film, I think that's kind of the point really and the but the score and the so the score could have been a mess 
It could have been an absolute mess, but it's not. It's amazingly. I mean, it's more skilledly. It's more skilled in terms of how it's it's, it's organised and put together than probably the film is realistically. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the film is is a bit wibbly and wobbly, and it goes all over the place. But you know, I I, I think th- it really really helps sell the the emotion and of what and I you know I felt emotion in this film. I did. You know, and I'm not. I'm not even the greatest Spider-Man fan in the world. I like them, you know, but I really felt it towards the end. You know, when you've got all of these different things going on, all these different Spider-Men going on, all these kind of things. Oh, you know, things that pay off, certain payoffs that have been people people have been waiting for for a long time. You know, I felt it, and I think the music, 100%, the skill of this music helps sell that in this film for me, and that's why I agree with you. It's Marvel's best score. Uh, this year and you know I, I i'm gonna go as far as to say this is my favorite giacchino score for the spider-man trilogy personally. yeah I, i'd i'd agree with that i mean one can feel his affection for the spider-man character and again when people say oh there are no great film scores anymore you know when people sort of watch indiana jones and listen to john williams's music people say oh you know i pine for this kind of orchestral music where is it giacchino is doing it yeah <laughs> this totally. he, he's carrying the mantle for it 100%. and when you know when he deploys the choir you know, in the Arachnoverture, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the final track, it's just sensational. And it, it, it is a celebration of the Spider-Man legacy, particularly when, when the vocals are involved. It hits new heights and it's, it's superb. Yeah, my, my, my favourite score of the year, easily. I totally get it. I, it would have been mine were it not for um, a certain um, debonair secret agent who also came back this year. Because <laughs> um, my number one is inevitably no time to die. Now I, I watched I watched this um, on Christmas Day with my uh, in laws and with my wife for the second time she'd seen it. So it was my third time, and I I, I actually this film is um, it actually I think is becoming one of those Bond films that I like the more I like more the more I see it actually. Even and I really liked it first time round, but I really think it's as it's settling, I'm starting to really really like it even more, and. The music, I just think this is one of Hans Zimmer's best scores. I, I really, I really do. Like, I think, I think there is. When we talked a lot about it, I think in our last episode, you know, when we did a lot about Bond, but this is just brilliant. I think you know there are certain se- sequences in this that are that just blow me away in terms of the music. You know, the the opening Matera sequence, the the Cuba chase. Think one which I think we both sort of said was probably the best on the album before, which is just this thrilling, you know, Bondian ride. The way he has this recurring building theme in there, the dun 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 dun, it just and it builds in three different sections throughout the film, right at the beginning, in the middle, and then at the end, in different tonal, you know, compositions. I just love what he does in this. I really do. And I'm listening to it again and listening, listening to this. I listened to the score. This score I listened to more than any other score last year. I had it on repeat rotation around no, October, November time. And this isn't even getting into how he works John Barry's all the time in the world in there, which I know has been a bit controversial and some people have suggested it's, it doesn't work or, you know, it's a bit, and, and you know, that whole scene where Bond is talking to M and then they drip in the uh, majesty's sort of theme is a bit odd. It is a bit odd, but I think I think he manages to bring that in really well. We talked at length about this before, so I won't go into too much detail, but I still think this has been my favorite score of the year and I still think it's really rich. I think it's I think it deserves to be up there with some some of the best Bond movie scores for me. Yeah, it's I, I think um it's an impressive score. I'm really really glad that you've picked it. I mean, it's it's lovely to see, you know, 
a musical representation of of the Bond franchise coming out on top of your list of the best scores of the year. For me, I think there's a battle going on in it between the Zimmer mannerisms and the Bond mannerisms. And I think you astutely pointed out a couple of them there, particularly the use of the you know, the weird use of the On Her Majesty's Secret Service main thing during that conversation with Bond and M, which doesn't make any sense dramatically at all, although it's kind of subtly there in the background. I don't know why that's why that is in there necessarily, although the use of we have all the time in the world, it works emotionally, if not chronologically. So you think, hang on a minute, because that was composed for a completely different Bond act during a completely different era. Why are we now, why are we now hearing it? Here, but then you know, continuity has never been to the forefront in the Bond franchise in any sense, you know, musically, dramatically, narratively. So I'll, I'll forgive it that. I think that there, there, there is an issue between that very, very aggressive Hans Zimmer, Christopher Nolan sound, and maybe the more organic symphonic expectations of what one would expect the Bond score to sound like. Although I have to say, Bond scores have always mutated and changed, and there isn't. You know, John Barry is the musical backbone of this series. But then if you think of what David Arnold did in terms of picking up that that sense of orchestral melody and then infusing those, you know, synth samples and electronic sounds into it, David Arnold was doing that as well. So it might seem churlish of me to criticise Hans Zimmer for that. But with, with Zimmer, it's not it's not the instrumentation or the electronics that's the problem. It's, it's the tone, you know, because Hans Zimmer has got such an overbearing tone to his action music that that I think that in no in the No Times Die soundtrack tends to swamp you know the the Bond stuff. Not always. I mean, you know, we did cite the Cuba Chase bit, which is brilliant. I mean that's the most quick witted and humorous and kind of ironic track on the album. I think that's what's needed. I think that more of that that you know very often when, when John Barry scored James Bond, he said he was it was multi million dollar Mickey Mouse music. That's how he described it. And John Barry was, you know, fairly disparaging of the later Bond movies that he scored. And one could sense that he was becoming less and less interested in it. I think the problem is that I have with Hans Zimmer's No Time to Die is that a lot of it is overly portentous in a way that doesn't mesh with the expectation, my expectations of Bond, particularly towards the end, towards the final sequence on the island with with Rami Malek's character. So that is a problem. Um, that said, there are themes in it, and I love thematic scores. The way he uses Billy Eilish's main title melody is, is superb, really, really great, and it does create a sense of vulnerability and empathy for Daniel Craig's Bond. So that kind of swings the needle the other way. I will applaud the score for that. So I think for me, it's a mixed bag. I think June, for me as a soundtrack, June is a more successful Hans Zimmer experiment, but I think there are very very admirable things in no time to die but i'm delighted that you've picked it because it allows us to talk about bond and the history of bond music which is great yeah 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 we we went really in depth on that in the last episode so you know i'd refer anyone back to that because that was a great chat and yeah i you know it's uh i think no i think no time to die was my number three top movie of, of 2021 so bond's always got to be in there you know in the mix for me because i'm you know that's just what i like um but uh yeah this has been great the the uh these are our top 10 then each uh of scores um and it, it's been oh, i think we've got some real musical jewels over these last two episodes so it's been um there's been some fantastic listening going on over the last week or so uh and over the last year to be fair um so yeah we will put together the usual spotify playlist uh, of examples for people to go and listen to uh, and you're in for a treat you're in for an absolute treat there 
Uh, but before we go, uh, let's briefly talk about what we're looking forward to for the rest of this year then. So what is standing out for you, Sean, in terms of films uh, and the, the scores for particular films that you're you're excited to see come in? Well, we've got a lot of big franchise properties this year. We've got a lot of big comic book um, movies in particular. So I'm really looking forward to Danny Elfman reuniting with Sam Raimi for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Really, really excited about that because the last comic book score they did was 2004 Spider-Man 2 which is obviously as we said was cited in Michael Giacchino's score for um, Spider-Man No Way Home I mean Spider-Man 2 led to a falling out between the two of them which then led to Christopher Young scoring some of Spider-Man 2 and then all of Spider-Man 3 so I'm really really excited to see what the two of them are going to do for, 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 for the Doctor Strange sequel um, I'm really interested to see what, what James Newton Howard is going to do for Fantastic Beasts The Secrets of Dumbledore um, it's not a franchise in which I'm emo- emotionally invested, but I do like what James Newton Howard has done with it musically. And in fact, I should point out John- James Newton Howard's Jungle Cruise was that close to getting into my top 10 yeah. of 2021. It was so close. That's very <laughs> was, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was a bit surprised that you didn't put that in, actually. actually I was, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought you might put that in there. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very it was very very close. Um, I'm you know if I could do a top eleven, but then that's kind of <laughs> picking the rules. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a couple of examples of what I'm looking forward to. They're great. They say yeah, I'm, they're on my list as well. Things that stood out. I am really really excited to see what Michael Giacchino is going to do with the Batman in in a couple of months' time because that could be thrilling stuff, and it could be it will be really different from what Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard did with uh with the nolan films and uh i'm i'm stoked for lorne balf's mission impossible 7 as well because i absolutely loved fallout and his music for that so i'm personally really excited to see how he's going to carry that through and do some more with that as well equally towards the end of the year i'm i mean i think a lot of people will be feeling this ludwig joranson's black panther wakanda forever score given how great an oscar winning his first one was I'm really, really excited to see if that's going to be as good this time round. I mean, that film is a big question mark generally, I think, in so many ways um, now. But I, I, given how great that that first score was, bring that on 100%. So there's lots, there's lots of really interesting stuff, I think, coming this year. And hopefully, you know, we'll have, we'll have more of a full normal year for 2022 and film releases, which means, uh, and this, this isn't even counting potential TV stuff that we might talk about as well, but... Hopefully we'll be able to be back a little bit more regularly, monthly, you know, um, talking about stuff that's been going on because we'll have films to see. So that'd be good this year. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, there's a couple of other examples I just wanted to cite. Um, Nathan Johnson's score for Nightmare Alley, which as we record oh. this is coming out in just a couple few weeks. Um, yeah, it's coming soon. Yeah. Coming soon. Um, he replaced Alexandre Desplat on that, but then Desplat is scoring Del Toro's iteration of Pinocchio, which I believe is coming out towards uh, the end of 2022. I might be mistaken about that. Um, so, yeah, two two Guillermo Del Toro films within the space of a, of a year and two Guillermo del Toro film scores within the space of a year, which should be <laughs> exciting, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I think. Well, we might. I, I reckon we'll cover Nightmare Alley fairly soon on the podcast. Actually, that sounds like maybe one for next episode, possibly. Um, we'll have to have a look at it and see. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some really cool stuff. There's some really cool stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna hopefully be back a little bit more regularly to to talk about that um, this year. Fingers crossed. So uh, so yeah, the omens are good. Well, um, thanks, Sean. It's been great to chat as always with you about this stuff so until uh, we're back next time uh, do you want to remind people where they can find you online for a bit more Sean 
Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Sean Film Writer um, and on Twitter at SeanO22, uh, where I'll be sharing more details about my upcoming book, uh, The Sound of Cinema, yeah. um, which is due to be published by McFarland Publishers uh, at some point in 2022. Do we so, have a date yet? Uh, we don't that? have a date yet. We we do have a front cover, which are, which I have yes. shared on Instagram and Twitter so people can... can seek that out because i'm, I'm excited nice. about that <laughs> mm. yeah yeah i can't wait to read it yeah absolutely so yeah that's um that's coming down the pipe that's gonna be brilliant you can find me on twitter at aj black writer and uh my website ajblackwriter.com for any writing i'm doing uh as well so uh look me up there and um yeah more generally the we made this podcast network at wmt underscore network um, but thanks for joining us for this episode. Um, please subscribe to Between the Notes and give us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. A review on Apple would be a nice late Christmas present for us, seriously, because it yeah. would really help us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that'd be brilliant. If you want to help the network out that we made this network a little bit more, uh, please check us out on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash we made this for some bonus things and just to give us uh, a, 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 a... We only ask for a very, very little small bit of money just to help us out um, and keep the network going. So... Huge thanks if you choose to do that. Um, but the, the scores of 2021 are not all we're talking about on the network. So we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed in just a moment. But until next time, uh, we hope you enjoy the film music. Check out the uh, Spotify playlist that we'll have. Um, stay safe and well. And we'll see you next time discussing the music of film and maybe a bit of television between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. Red and buried. I think that with this podcast, we get to explore all the different types of, of things that exist within crime. Yes. And the genre. The only rule being it has to be in the book. Yeah. Yeah. The literary equivalent of fast food. And I love fast food. Well, there you go. Exactly. And yeah, it's kind of a crime within a crime and a book within a book. A and murder? A murder. Oh. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast. And I think what it actually does is simple, silly, short and on brand and fits Red Dwarf. But critically, because it is an advert, it's actually effective. I got the message that it is a better idea to use the app technology over a phone call to the AA. And that's surely the job done, right? Yeah. 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 I didn't think it was like roll on the floor funny, but I didn't think it was unfunny. I thought Chris Barry's performance of he was ringing. It reminded me a lot of the old bank adverts you used to get where someone would be like, oh, you're with that new bank. Well, I'm with so-and-so bank and I can ring. I'm sure that there were adverts like Brian Laurie that used to do that back in the day or Harry Enfield. The Barclay card adverts with Johnny England. That's it. Yes. Yes. Movieversaries. How old were you when you sort of came across Mulholland Drive? You've been pretty young, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I had... I watched it two days ago, but I haven't seen it since I was about 17 or 18. Mm. And, I, and I think the only reason I got onto that is because of the film style, but also <laughs> because of the band uh, Rammstein. <laughs> right, they had... Um, was it the song Rammstein in Lost Highway? Uh, the, the song Rammstein was in, yep, in, in Lost Highway, correct? But they also did a music video for some song, I can't remember what it was, but it was like a burning of a car. And I remember that I watched the making of and they just kept talking about it being Lynchian. 
Um, I was like, what does that mean? Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes. On iTunes, your podcast app of choice. On Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.